just to start us off, would you please just join me in a word of prayer? Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. God, we love your name. We need you to be gracious to us and to turn to us. Our mouths are open. We are panting for your word this morning, God. All week long, we've heard words from the news. We've heard words from our social media. We've heard words at the coffee shop. We've heard words, God, in our workplaces. We've heard words in our head. We need your word this morning, God. Unfold your word and give us light. Give us understanding, God. And once again, satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We pray for Christ's sake and the gospels. Your glory for our good in Jesus' name. Amen. And Redemption City Church, so good to be with all of you this morning. As uh, Pastor Mike already mentioned, he and I, we've known each other, man, well before y'all were even planted. And to think, as we were grabbing coffee a few weeks back, just to think about how long we've known each other, and then for the light bulb to go on, for as long as we've known each other, this is my first time joining you guys, like, Either that's an indictment on me being really flaky or really busy. Uh, I'm not sure which one, but um, either way, man, it is so good to be with you. And I think that what we're going to see today is a rare form of pastoral karate. Um, Just a little, I think, payback, if you will, uh, from Pastor Mike for me being so long to get here. Uh, I'm going to be opening up one of probably the hardest sayings in Jesus' entire teaching ministry Um, And so uh, here we are the weekend leading up to Valentine's Day, (laughs) and we get a lovely message on Jesus' take on divorce. Um, Not exactly um, uh, something intentional. It is definitely the way that it kind of just unfolded here for this uh, sermon series, but even just as I was getting to meet Liv here, she was uh, letting me know that uh, she just got engaged. Is that okay for me to announce? Uh, Like, so, like, um, and I just thought, well, wonderful, we're going to have a conversation. (laughs) Happy engagement. (laughs) So, um, but all joking aside, guys. Um, I just want to start off uh, giving you guys a little picture that's near and dear to my heart here. This is um, Exhibit A of a guy who has clearly outkicked his coverage. Uh, this is my wife and me, uh, Jacqueline, on our wedding day. Saturday, February 20th, 2016. And for those of you who are keeping score, yes, we got an anniversary coming up. 
next Monday uh, for our seven-year anniversary. So praise God for that. Uh, but this picture, guys, um, what you need to know about it is this, that it captures what was the culmination of a whirlwind week that set us on a trajectory for a whirlwind next six months and a whirlwind next couple of years. Um, I mentioned that our wedding date was on Saturday, February 20th. What you need to know, though, is that that was not the original plan. No, Jacqueline was not pregnant. (laughs) But that week on Wednesday... There was a family emergency, and I'll spare you the details there because uh, what's relevant here is just that you need to know we eloped eight months earlier than we ever even planned. And while it's obvious that our faces were full of joy, our hearts were full of joy, what's not so obvious was the pressure we were under in that moment and the pressure we were about to undergo in the months and years ahead. And within just the first six months of our marriage, guys, listen, Jacqueline and I would have a family member live with us after a domestic violence stay in the hospital. We were blessed but totally surprised that we were going to be getting new job titles, mom and dad. As if that wasn't enough excitement for the first six months of marriage, um, my job was eliminated, and I was thrown into a season of uncertainty and unemployment. And add, add to this a couple years of just compound fractures to the heart. And what we started to find, guys, was this couple you see up on the screen, full of joy, full of just delight in one another, found ourselves being, rather than a couple going out arm in arm together, we were coming out from corners at each other within just a few years of our marriage, guys. Jacqueline and I wanted out, and by out, I mean we wanted divorce. And we wanted it in no uncertain terms. Started life and marriage, guys, with this thing not even registering with us. We were thrilled to be married. We were happily married. Before too long, quietly, divorce started to emerge on our radar so that it started to go from in our minds to on our lips and looking like a target worth not just pulling the trigger but getting in our rearview mirror. I just wonder, does this describe any of you today? Maybe you are in a season of singleness, or you are happily married, and man, this thing, divorce, it's not even on the register. Praise God. But for others of you, I just wonder, is there anyone here where radar, it might be just in the headspace right now, For others of you, maybe it's moved onto the lips and down into the heart, and it's right on the radar. 
I wonder if maybe even some of you, it's like, man, it's beyond the register, it's beyond the radar, it's in my rearview mirror. We have a conversation today in a text of Scripture that I believe offers us profound wisdom, life-giving grace and truth. Regardless of our marital status, regardless of our marital history. So as we open our text, we're going to encounter, like I already mentioned, what may be one of Jesus' hardest sayings in his entire teaching ministry. I believe this text offers us an invitation to consider the issue beneath the issue. Not just getting married and staying married, but the underlying issue that sustains it all in the first place. We're going to have a conversation today about the issue beneath the issue that has the potential to not just get us married, not just keep us married, not just give us life after we maybe already were married, but guys, we're talking about something that has the potential to make us fully alive to God, fully alive to people, regardless of where we're at in life. That's a conversation I believe is worth having in this text. I could get into all of the political bombshells this thing could maybe set off. I could get into all the cultural norms and things that we might think are pressing. But we've got to keep the main issue here, the main issue. And it's not what's out there, it's what's right in here in our heart. And so, as we are going to dive into this thing, guys, uh, it's going to break down into three sections And we're going to plow our way through this thing, not front to back, but back to front to middle, and then come back full circle. So um, the reason we're going to do this, guys, is that I want to start with the end because I think it's at the end that we can start with why. Why this text is here. How it fits in the greater context of Mark's gospel story. I think that if we can get a grasp on that, guys, I think we can start to see how the rest of the text, how it can make meaning for our lives, the greater context of our stories. So um, let's dive into part one of our conversation. Um, Starting at the end of the text, we're going to be in part one just having a conversation here about the hindrance of humility. So let's just revisit verses 13 and 16. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. Uh, Let's check that out there. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. That being just a universal sign of blessing in that day. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. And I love this line. 
He took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Blessing, blessing, blessing. And so, if you've been following along in this series so far, I just wonder, do any of these words here sound familiar to you? If they do, it says not just that you're following along in this series closely, but that you're listening closely to the text of this series. Um, Back in Mark chapter 9, verses 36 and 37, I want you just to check out these words here. You can see it on the screen. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name, whoever receives me and whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Guys, when I read these words here in Mark chapter 9, verses 36 and 37, I know that Jesus here is concluding a critical lesson. He's trying to imprint upon the hearts and minds of his followers what true greatness is in the kingdom of God. And the point he's trying to make here is this, that greatness in God's kingdom is not like greatness in human kingdoms. Greatness in God's kingdom is not like greatness in human kingdoms. I mean, just think about this. Our kingdoms seek to be served. God's kingdom seeks to serve. Our kingdoms, they lift ourselves up, but in God's kingdom, it's all about lifting others up. God's kingdom, or our kingdom says, your life for my life. God's kingdom says, my life for your life. Human kingdoms, guys, value people who are independent of others. God's kingdom values children who are completely dependent upon others. In a word, greatness in God's kingdom is humility. Here's the thing about humility. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Doesn't it seem like humility can so often feel like a hindrance? Hindrance to getting things done, hindrance to getting what we want, hindrance to efficiency, hindrance to getting our goals achieved. So often I feel like when I have to take the humble approach, it's often the slower approach. Often when I have to take the humble approach, it's often one, that's the others-oriented approach. When I don't take the humble approach, I can go fast, I can go far, but when I take the humble approach, it just seems like Jesus' words here about greatness in his kingdom, that approach is just so much more lasting, so much more meaningful. But besides that, though, I think the disciples would agree (laughs) That this whole humility thing, I don't know if they're buying it yet. Because when we come back to our text here, check this out. Verse 13, notice something with me. In verse 13, 
and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them and the disciples what? Rebuked them. Is it just me or does it just seem like the disciples might be having a bad day here? Maybe they hadn't had their coffee yet. Maybe they're just getting a little hangry. Whatever is going on here, though, Mark is doing something fascinating for us. It's a little nerd moment here. I love me a little nerd moment. The Greek word that Mark uses here to portray the disciples' action toward these children, it's the same word he uses when he portrays Jesus talking to demons. Check this back with me here. You can see it on the screen. Well, I don't know if this one will be on the screen, but just listen to this one here in Mark chapter 1, verses 23 and 20 to 25. Just listen to this for a moment. Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God, but Jesus what? Jesus rebuked him. Jesus rebuked him. (laughs) And saying, be silent, come out of him. When we read this text back into our text in Mark chapter 10, is it any wonder why Jesus felt the way he did? Jesus is livid here. And it's just like, man, I just got done teaching you guys. Be like them. And instead, you're over here rebuking them. No wonder. I mean, I just think about like when I tell my kids, um, I need you when you're done with your toys to please put them away right here. And then I come. Playtime's done. And there's Legos everywhere. I step on one and I immediately go into man-baby mode. And it's just, (laughs) you know, it's just just like, you know what you're supposed to do here. So I think Jesus, though, is a little bit more intense in this moment. The stakes are a little bit higher than not stepping on Legos here. Throughout Mark's gospel, children are a picture for us of humility, guys. I mean, they personify arguably what might be the supreme value in our relationship with God and with one another. And it's this, it's humility, this posture of dependency upon God and one another and what so often can seem like a hindrance in our human kingdoms is really the only thing that can help us get started to enter the kingdom in the first place. Humility, humility, it's not a hindrance. It is a help. And as we just close part one of this conversation, and we see both Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 37, and then Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16, they're forming this bookend here. They form a bookend So that when we read the passages in between, these bookends on humility are to permeate everything between them. So that when we read 
what we're about to hear on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We're reading not just about this issue, but the issue beneath the issue, the issue of humility. This is why we start here. We could easily plow our way front to back, but if we don't start with why, what the issue is, and how we deal with the issue, kind of hard to see the value there. The why gets to the heart. The what gets to the hand. The how gets to the feet, guys. And I, I just know Jesus is so much more interested on starting here than doing anything with these guys here. So, let's continue on in our conversation here to part two. Um, we're going to go to part two here, starting back at the top. Moses and divorce explained in as we work our way from the top through this thing, let's just start back at verse 1 because there's a detail there that I don't want us to gloss over. So check it out. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. As we read this passage, open up. The detail I don't want us to gloss over is how Mark situates Jesus and his disciples. That little detail there, the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And you can see what I'm talking about here on this map. Um, As you can see, Jesus and his disciples are on this southbound journey that started all the way up north of the Sea of Galilee there, home base, home turf, Capernaum. And as they, the farther they work their way south, the farther they're getting away from home court advantage, so to speak, and entering into enemy territory. But here's the thing. Jesus is on this southbound journey because Jesus is explicitly on the road to the cross now. The turning point for this journey was back in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus starts to finally come clean, dropping hints about who he is and why he's here. Oh, and by the way, it's the cross. Here, guys, Jesus is now on this journey. He's crossed over the Jordan River, and now he's in the green zone of Judea. As he gets closer to the cross... He gets clearer with his teachings. That said, let's see what he says next here with those teachings. Mark chapter 10, verses 2. We'll go down to, mm, let's just, yeah, we'll read a little bit of that text there. Mark chapter 10, verse 2, all the way down to verse 9. And Pharisees came up in order to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. From the beginning of creation, 
God made them male and female. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. As we take in just this moment, there's two observations worth mentioning. And uh, on the one hand, the first observation has to do with just what, what did Moses command here? But then the second observation is going to do with how Jesus explained what Moses commanded. And so let's just start here with the first part, uh, what Moses commanded. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses is giving kind of like this final pep talk before the team hits the field. Um, Israel has been journeying through the desert for the last 40 years. They're on the brink of entering the promised land, finally. They've been delivered from slavery in Egypt, and now Moses just says, essentially, though you are out of Egypt, I need to instruct you on some, some things so that when you enter in to the promised land, though you're out of Egypt, I want you to live so that Egypt is out of you. You see, while they might have been out of Egypt, the jury was still out on whether or not Egypt was out of them. When they were to enter the promised land, they were to live differently. They were to be something different than what they had seen for the last 400 plus years in Egypt. That included their ethics of divorce. If you want to take a deeper dive, I encourage you, check out Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. There, you can really start to see it fleshed out of how this might have become a little bit of a debate between the Pharisees and Jesus. But what's important for us here is that these instructions tell us two things about Israel's approach to this topic of divorce. First, Divorce was allowed, but not ideal. Divorce was allowed, but not ideal. The second thing for us to note here is that these instructions were provided in order to protect. The question is, who? You see, in the world of Israel, guys, they were surrounded by nations who also had their own sets of divorce Law, Assyrians, Babylonians, you can see them here. Hammurabi's code, man, it's ruthless in the way it describes what's okay with divorce. Essentially, all the nations around Israel had divorce law that favored men. You see, women were seen as second-class humans. They had no rights. They were treated more like property than they were people. And as, as the Israelites are about to enter in, and they consider their divorce laws, it's to be something different. Something that almost makes your heart just say, 
Yes, about God and who he is and what he's like as his people showcase him. So these laws here were provided to protect women, to protect women from the vulnerabilities of society and repeat divorces at the hands of any man who wanted to divorce for any reason they wanted. And by the time Jesus arrives, God's people, they just lose so much sight of this. Instead of seeing these laws as allowed but not ideal, as provided in order to protect, they saw them as loopholes for their own selfish licenses. They saw them as loopholes to divorce for whatever reason, whenever they wanted. And so I just wonder, man, though they were out of Egypt, it just makes you wonder, was Egypt out of them still after all these years? The question, though, is still relevant today for us. We may be out of Egypt, so to speak. Redemption City Church is Egypt out of us. Because when I look In my own heart, I have to honestly ask myself that sometimes. Am I using scripture as a loophole to pressure people to do the things I want them to do for me on demand? When I take a look in my heart, am I using scripture to scrutinize others? in either how they're measuring up or how they're not being good enough or they're not meeting my expectations. If that is the case, I might be out of Egypt, but I don't know in those moments if Egypt is out of me. Can you relate? We don't get to make this call at the end of the day. The only one who can tell us you are out of Egypt and I have removed Egypt from you is Christ. This is where I don't fall to despair because I know that it's not up to me. It's up to Jesus. That he is the one, the only one who can tell me you're out and it's out. When I move from that place, It makes me so much more compelled to not just want to embrace that Egypt, that I'm out of it, but to live into Egypt being out of me. And that's just the first observation there is what Moses commanded. And this leads us just to the second observation, how Jesus explained what Moses commanded. And here, Jesus wastes no time Get into the heart of the matter. I mean, look here in verse 5 with me. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Interesting. Who else in Scripture is so often associated with a hard heart? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. 
Guys, you might be out of Egypt, but I don't know if Egypt is out of you because Moses wrote this for your hard heart, for your Egypt-like heart. But then in verse 6 to 9, as it continues, but from the beginning, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Again, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Um, I don't know if you know these guys here at the Bible Project. This is uh, Tim Mackey, John Collins, and just two really, I feel like the only word that, like, if you've listened to them talk at all, the only word is just, rad. (laughs) Um, Really cool dudes. Um, Not only are they creating just mind-blowing videos, but also some of the articles they just crank out so helpful. Uh, They, of course, also have a Bible Project podcast. And just recently, they were kind of riffing on the relationship between the instructions of Moses in Deuteronomy and the teachings of Jesus throughout the gospel. I was like, okay, thank you, Lord. You see me. Um, I just find what they shared in that episode so helpful. Just three little insights that I think are worth us considering as we consider. What did Jesus mean? How did he explain this whole thing that Moses is talking about here in, on divorce? So first, Jesus saw himself as restoring people Back to God's ideal for humanity. Jesus saw himself as restoring people back to God's ideal for humanity. That's why he appeals back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You might see it in your footnotes there, just the references. Genesis 1, 26, 27. Genesis 2. Jesus is restoring people back to God's ideal for humanity. But then the second thing that they mention here is Jesus concludes that when a man and woman become one flesh through marriage, it reveals something unique about the image of God that is torn apart by divorce. The conclusion Jesus is making here is that divorce tears apart something so unique about the image of God. Male and female becoming one flesh is not God three in one. And we bearing his image. Jesus' conclusion here tells us that the image of God is torn apart by divorce. But then third, Jesus meant then that the reasons for divorce can't be flippant. They can't be just about anything. I think we know that now in our day and age. But for Jesus and his audience there with the Pharisees, it's like he was just going and doing some type of body slam on anything everyone was thinking about in that day. Jesus tells us here that he's on a mission to restore people back to God's ideal 
is telling them that divorce does something that tears apart the unique qualities of the image of God in people. And he's dropping this final reality. This means that we can't get divorced for any reason we want. As we take in what Moses commanded, as we consider how Jesus, excuse me, my throat. As we consider, is there any way I could get some water? (laughs) My babe. Jacqueline Giroux, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Thanks, honey. (laughs) Ride or die. (laughs) Might come back to that in a minute. But just as we consider these things, Moses' teaching and Jesus' explanation, anyone just feel like you've got more questions now than you do answers? I know I do. I think the disciples did too. And so as we move on to part three in our conversation, I think that's what we're going to see is they got many questions But Jesus is interested in only one answer. Check out with me verses 10 to 12. In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. We're really given an inside scoop of just the kind of access the disciples had here to Jesus. I imagine that these guys had a lot of questions that night after that conversation with the Pharisees. And I just wonder if some of the questions they were asking might be similar to the ones you are asking in your heart right now. Jesus, what if I don't love my spouse anymore? What if my spouse doesn't love me anymore? Uh, Jesus, what if my spouse loves me and also loves somebody else? Jesus, what if my spouse is abusing me? What if my spouse won't get help with the addiction? Jesus, what if I just want out? Jesus, what if I just want divorce? If these are any of your questions, Redemption City Church family, I plead with you. Do not keep them to yourself. Your questions are valid. Jesus hears you. But he doesn't want to hear you solo. The questions we keep from community often become the lies we live into in isolation. If you have any of these questions... Jesus maybe doesn't answer all of them here in this text, but boy, within community, 
Jacqueline and I can attest, when we've brought our questions, when we've brought our junk out into the open in community, those questions are so much easier to navigate than if we tried to figure it out and fight it out on our own. Jesus hears you, but he also has his eyes set on something else for you. Jesus still has his eyes set on one thing here. The hardness of heart of the Pharisees back in verse 5. He's still compelled to keep teaching his followers about the fragile nature of the image of God. And so easily get torn apart by flippant, hard-hearted decisions to get divorced as they were trying to weasel out of Jesus. The instructions from Moses to Israel said that divorce was allowed but not ideal, provided in order to protect. Then Jesus was teaching his followers and us. He's making a way not just for us to go back to the garden, but also for marriage to go back to the garden too. Hear that. He's not just making a way back to the garden for you. He's making a way back to the garden for marriage. He's making a way back to the garden, even if we've been divorced. This is where good news comes in. That Jesus, he's got his eyes set on the issue beneath the issue here. And it's not that we would be people who are hard-hearted, but that we would be people who are humble. Even as he was humble for us. So often, we can believe that our marriages are just a love story about me and my spouse. When we believe this, It just makes it all too easy to jump ship when suddenly our love story becomes a story we don't want to be in. But if we are Jesus followers, marriage is a story it's a story about a God who embodies what arguably may be the supreme value, not just in our relationship with him and with one another, but embodies what may very well be the supreme value in marriage. Humility. At least in this text, Jesus, guys, is so focused on one thing here. He's calling us as his followers to do marriage differently. Different than Egypt, different than Moses, different than Hollywood. Jesus is calling us to do marriage in a way that tells the story about the humble God who came in and through himself, his son Jesus, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you, for me, for my marriage. When this becomes the story we are telling, it leads to something beautiful. But first, when you think about the story your marriage is telling you, what would your spouse say? 
what would your kids say? When I think about the marriage I'm telling, what would Jacqueline say? What would my kids say? When we come back to just this picture here, um, this couple here so full of joy and on their wedding day, guys, it didn't take long for Jacqueline to learn something about me. It didn't take long for her to learn that she was married to a dude who was all about himself. His ambition, his drive, his pre-marriage priorities with family, friends, free time. When she would confront me, It was like the T-Swift song, guys. I would rather stare directly at the sun than in the mirror and change. That was me. I was the problem. You can chuckle, but it's also true. When our hearts, guys, are hard, humility isn't the only thing that dies. Soon, unity does. And marriage, eventually, isn't too far behind. But here's the thing about humility, is it's almost got like this superpower quality about it that God has instituted. Think about it. I mean, humility, it leads to unity, and unity leads to flourishing. And when you are flourishing in the way that God would have you flourish, People start to taste and see something about God that's good. But in order for this to happen, our hearts must be softened first. And guys, we'll never know humility unless we first experience the humility of Jesus. In the same way that Jesus took the children in his arms and blessed them, believe this is what he desires to do for each and every one of you. Take you in his arms. Bless you. Regardless of your marital status, regardless of your marital history, it's when we let Jesus take us that he can bless us. And guys, this is the profound wisdom. This is the beautiful life-giving grace and truth that this text offers us. So may you be taken in his arms. You be blessed by his words, not just spoken over, but into your life. May you be humble like his example, not just extended to you, but his humble example for you on the cross. Redemption City Church, may you be strengthened by Christ's power that not even death or divorce can overcome. May you be amazed by the humble, yet profound, amazing teacher Messiah we have in Jesus, the one who is faithful to the end. Let's pray.
Jesus, I thank you that you are the good shepherd. Because it's when we interact with texts like this one, we need your shepherding. I just pray, Lord, that what has been said that's not of you, you would burn away, and what is of your truth, of your word, would plant so deep in our hearts and bear a hundredfold fruit, make Redemption City Church a church that is known for redemption both in marriage and after divorce, before it all even. Lord, continue to be supreme, continue to be glorified as we worship you.